there, and after a long sabbatical, all out is back with a few more open and honest chats with big names from the world of cricket. We kick things off with a man whose career has been a real roller coaster of ups and downs. Timar Mills was one of England's hottest fast bowling prospects, but almost had to retire at the age of just 22, having been diagnosed with a congenital back condition. He's not one to throw in the towel though. He reinvented himself as a T20 bowler and despite more serious injury setbacks, managed to land a huge payday in the IPL and play for England in a T20 World Cup. As he gets ready for his second IPL season in Mumbai, Tamal opens up about his determination to stay in the game, his struggles to live up to his £1.4 million price tag in his first IPL season and looks ahead to a fresh start with the Mumbai Indians. He's also got some really interesting views on racism in English cricket in the wake of the Azim Rafiq case. Always refreshingly honest, Tamal Mills is a great example that nice guys don't always finish last. Tamal, how are you? How's Mumbai? Yeah, very good, thank you. A few days quarantine, uh, which was challenging. I've got my daughter and my wife with me. My daughter's almost two, so keeping her entertained is was a difficult uh, experience at times, but um, no, we, we got through that fine and it's been really good to meet all my new teammates, coaching staff and kind of get my feet under the table and, and look forward to what's hopefully going to be a really successful couple of months. I know you always like to look forward, but when you're in these kind of situations where you're on the verge of playing in a massive tournament, do you ever look back and think about previous times in your career and all the setbacks that you've been through to get to this point? Uh, yes and no. I, I'm not a big one for looking back. I think he, that's something that I'll maybe do at, at the end of my career, maybe, whenever that might be. But, yeah, look, if, if, if you do look back now, there are obviously times when I thought I might, well, it was pretty obvious that I might not be here or achieve some of the things that I've managed to achieve in my career. Um, obviously had some pretty bad injuries when I was younger and then some more uh, more recently some, some bad injuries again. But, you know, each time... I just put myself in a situation where I kind of tell myself, okay, you either retire and stop doing it and you go and get a, a proper job or, or, you, or you, you, you go through the, the hard times and, and hope that when you come out of it, better times will be ahead. So um, that's, that's kind of the situation I put myself in and the mindset that I have and it served me well so far, you could say. So for those that don't know, the big news that you had in terms of injuries was in 2015, wasn't it, when you were diagnosed with a congenital back condition. So what exactly does that preclude you from doing? How can you bowl in 20 over cricket and not be able to bowl in 40 over cricket? Yes, yeah, so it's a very long story and I won't go into the full, the full details. Um, but yeah, essentially I, I grew up, I played four day cricket and it was my introduction to the game really. I, I played for Essex when I was young and I got into the team that way playing four day cricket and for whatever reason, uh, when I was yeah, 21, 22, I kept having this problem. Basically, I'd run in every so often towards the end of a spell or the end of a day. I'd run in and I'd, I'd hit the crease. I had a big shock, electric, like an electric shock around my waist. And then that went into my legs. And my legs wouldn't quite, pins and needles in my feet and my legs. And I, I couldn't walk properly. And when it happened at its worst, um, I, I, the physio asked me to do a squat and I couldn't really get back up again. Like I'd, I'd lost a lot of power in my legs. So I went off and had a lot of tests done, some of some of which pretty invasive, some, you know, some, some not pretty nice, you know, spinal taps and, and things like that, um, brain scans, a, a lot of tests. Looking back on it, it was probably a bigger deal than what I probably felt it was at the time. Um, the neurologist actually told me he... he once I kind of got the all clear, he was concerned that I might have like early stages of, of uh, multiple sclerosis because I was that, those were some of the symptoms that I was displaying. But he obviously didn't say that to me until he knew for sure either way. So I'm very lucky in that regard. But essentially what was happening was the, I had a, a narrowing of the spinal canal for a brief, for a small chunk of my, of my spine, which meant that Essentially, the, the more I bowled, the, the more the spine was moving. And at this particular juncture in my spine, the spinal cord was getting irritated, and more and more irritated. And then eventually it kind of short-circuited, if that makes sense. That's probably the best way I, I can describe it. Um, and then that caused the shock and the, the problems that I was having with, 
with my legs. So the one common theme was that it was only happening when I was bowling a lot. So towards, say, you know, 15th over, 17th over of a day, um, or if I bowled a lot one day and then came back to bowl the next day, there was obviously some irritation there. So essentially they, the doctors and the club, I'd moved to Sussex by this time and was presented with two, two options really. And one of those was to retire kind of for insurance purposes, medical purposes. I had kind of grounds to retire, uh, or the other was to try and bowl less and uh, try and just play T20 cricket because, as I said, the, these problems weren't happening. You know, in my first spell or my second spell, it was it was when I was bowling a lot. So, um, yeah, obviously I, that that was a the position I was presented with when I was 22, I think. So obviously pretty young, um, and obviously I chose to to try and play T20 cricket, and I'm uh, I'm glad I did. So were you quite close to taking that retirement option? No. Um, it was obviously presented to me. It was, it was a one or the other decision. And I remember, I remember the day very clearly, actually. I was, it was my first year down in, in Hove in Brighton. Um, obviously, what had happened had happened. I remember I had a meeting in the uh, chief exec's office at Sussex. The doctors were there, the physio. You know, everybody that had to be there was there. And they you know, sat me down and, and told me what, you know what was going on and they they presented me those two options and obviously I said no I'm I'm, I'm going to play T20 cricket but they said no t- go, you know go away think it's obviously a, a serious decision um you need to obviously you know talk to anybody you'd like to talk to take a you know take a bit of time and yeah I went I was sharing a flat with my mate from uni uh, he worked in the city all day so he, he didn't get home till say 6:37 and I remember I was just back in the flat at maybe 10 a.m. or 10:30 a.m. And yeah, I just sat there. That was a pretty, that was a, that was a tough day. Um, just obviously trying to. Well, I, did, I didn't have anything to figure out because I knew I was going to try and play T Twenty cricket, but I'd also been told that I might have to retire, and I'd been given that option. So after, so that that day was a tough day, but I got through that, and then obviously went back to Sussex and told them that no, I want to want to give T Twenty cricket a, a go, um, and then we kind of went about. Um, that journey from there and obviously things that haven't always gone swimmingly since then I've had injuries of course um, unrelated to the back problem but I've also been able to you know achieve some some things that I'm really proud of and travel all around the world and um, I'm, I'm, I'm here still doing it right now so yeah it's 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 a bittersweet I guess and um, but I look back on it and think um, it might have been the best thing that ever happened to me in terms of my cricket I think you're understating it, really, mate. It's been a sort of fairy tale, inspirational story, really, really. When you think of all of the stuff you've gone through, as you said, it wasn't just being diagnosed with that condition. You had other issues too. For example, 2020, you had a stress fracture in your back where you were wearing a a brace for a long period of time, and you know, just a few months down the line, you're playing in a World Cup for England. How did you manage to stay so positive and so determined to keep doing all the rehab? Yeah, it's tough. Um, as you say, I think this time last year, 12 months ago, I was still in the back brace. I think I was probably just about to come out of it um, due to stress fracture. Ultimately, I, I think keeping it simple is how I've always gone about injuries and rehab. Love. <laughs> I've torn my left hamstring three or four times. I've torn my right quad a couple of times. I've, unfortunately, I've had a lot of injuries that I've had to rehab, obviously, of differing degrees. But yeah, like last winter, after a second stress fracture in the back, being put in the back brace for what ended up being three and a half months or so, and being told, okay, do nothing for three and a half months, essentially, during during lockdown, during the winter, um, was, was tough. But... Um, Ultimately, I put myself in the situation as you either you either do it and you get through it, and then you hopefully come out a bit better, or or you retire and you you have to go out into the real world and get a get a proper job. And um, every time I ask myself that question or put myself in that situation, do the rehab and and come out of it always <laughs> always wins. So I think keeping it that simple, and then also once you, when you're in the situation trying to keep as busy as you can. Um, it's tough when you're injured. You know, you can only do rehab for 
so much of the day, or in my case, I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't do anything for a few months. I was strictly told I had to wear this back brace literally unless I was sleeping or I was in the shower, and that brace stopped me from doing anything. I was allowed to walk, and I was allowed to upright stationary cycle on a bike. So I did that in the evening. I had a newborn daughter, so I took her and my dog for about an hour and a half walk each morning with the pushchair. So those were my two activities. As I said, it was the middle of lockdown over Christmas back in England. So it wasn't anything I could do socially. Um, so I had to try and find ways to, to stay mentally occupied. Um, and yeah, just try and focus on, the, on what were hopefully going to be the good times ahead. Um, yeah, of which I'm, I'd like to think I'm sat here now as part of that process. If I could take you back to a few years before that T20 World Cup, your big break almost on the franchise scene was getting a big IPL deal in 2017. Uh, what was it? £1.4 million for Royal Challengers Bangalore. I remember being in a studio for Sky and covering that year uh, and I saw you know willing you on and wanting you to do well there are a few other English guys playing that year as well uh, it probably didn't go as well as you would have liked that season I don't think you had a terrible season by any stretch of the imagination but you, you probably didn't play as much as you would have liked yeah was it still a great learning experience what did you get out of it yeah you're right first of all it didn't go as well as what I would have hoped I certainly didn't live up to the price tag that I was that I was purchased for, um, and I think that affected me and my reputation after that as well. Um, but yeah, I was very young. I was naive. I think I was naive to it. I think I was 24 then. Um, I it came at the end of a busy franchise winter. I remember I that was my first year playing franchise cricket, and I did really well. I went I went I literally bounced all around the world. I went to the Bangladesh Premier League, from there to New Zealand to play in the Super Smash. Then I played some Big Bash games. Then we had an England series in India. Then I went to the PSL. So I did pretty much four and a half months on the road playing competitions. And then I went home for maybe three weeks before going to the IPL. So looking back, probably cumulatively, that was probably too much cricket before then going to the IPL. Um, that's something that I've learned now and learned how to manage my body and myself before going into different tournaments now. Whereas back then I was young, I just wanted to play and I was, you know, obviously doing well and you just you just go with the flow really. So um, I've learned from that in that regard. And then, yeah, dealing with the disappointment of, oh yeah, I pulled my hamstring whilst I was at the IPL. It wasn't a bad one where you kind of just get sent home, but it was also kind of affected how I was able to go about the rest of the tournament. And it was, it was frustrating because it was, supposed to be this real big kind of crescendo to a great year that I was having and unfortunately it kind of it ended on a on a damp note we as a team did poorly that year as well I think we finished last and you know we had this brilliant team with Virat Kohli, A.B. de Villiers, Chris Gale, Shane Watson uh, it was an all-star team and it all kind of didn't go go particularly well so yeah that was frustrating um, and then it, it, I remember I carried that hamstring into the English summer and that kind of plagued me for a little while as well so um, yeah, it was, that was an interesting 12 months, but uh, something that I've, I've definitely learned from a lot since then. Did the big price tag not really help then on the cricket field? Was it a bit of a burden? Because it's a bit of an unusual situation, isn't it? Everyone watching that game knows exactly how much you're supposed to be earning for the season. Yeah, so personally, no. As I said, I was very, I was probably naive looking back. I didn't. I'm a very confident person. I'm not. Um, I didn't go over. There. I wasn't going over there nervous. I wasn't going over there thinking, "Oh God, I've got to, I've got to perform to this level." Um, and to, to the credit of RCB, so Dan Vittori and Trent Woodhill were the coach and the assistant coach. And when I flew into Bangalore, one of the first things they did was, you know, take me out for a beer and said, "Look, mate, generally don't don't worry about the price tag. We we you we identified at the auction. You were the bowler that we wanted, and if we paid 100 grand, 500 grand." million pounds whatever it was it just it didn't matter to us we just wanted you we had the money and it you know it, it wasn't a, a, a thing uh, I know it's, 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 it's as crazy as that might might sound to, to people listening at home but um, you know, I, I didn't put pressure on myself in that regard um, other people would have talk, spoken about it of course they would people in the media people you know that's that's part that's part and parcel it happens every year in the IPL 
somebody somebody will go for a lot of money and not perform to that to that standard. But what where it did affect me was I think subsequently in years afterwards I feel like I didn't then get picked in auctions in the years gone by because obviously I did it, I, I was kind of deemed a, a flop because I didn't live up to that price tag. Whereas if I performed the same but I only went for three hundred thousand, I don't think I'd be have been looked upon the same, if that makes sense. Uh, yeah. So yeah, ultimately, I know I didn't live up to that price tag, but it was frustrating. There were yeah, there were years. There were years after that where I felt I was bowling really well. I was playing well in tournaments, you know, in and around the world. And then the IPL auction would come come about, and I'd obviously go on go unsold. So um, yeah, it was obviously maybe a bit of a poison chalice in, in in that regard. But I'd obviously still I'd still rather have that experience and that time of my life than than not for sure. People are obsessed with money in this world, particularly in sports. That's why the IPL auction is box office viewing for a lot of people. Obviously, I don't want you to reveal, you know, how, how much you earn or whatever else. But people don't realise that money that you're bid for, you don't get anywhere near all of that, do you? You've got to pay off various people before you, you get anything like that. Yeah, obviously, we pay tax. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, you obviously, you re you receive the money minus whatever the Indian tax laws are 20% or whatever it is for foreign nationals. Sorry, I don't know what exactly is. So you receive the money already minus some tax. You then have to make up the tax back in England as soon as you bring the money back to the UK. So yeah, you're obviously you're losing pretty much half of it in terms of tax. And then um, yeah, if, if you don't play all the games, if you're injured, so as I was, I was injured during the IPL, you lose a certain percentage for each match that you are unavailable for. Um, so they basically portion it up into, say, if there's 14 games, they portion it into 14. And, you, and if you play 14, you get all of it. If you play seven, you get half of it. Yeah, essentially. I think if you arrive fit and available for the first game, I think maybe 30 or 40% of the contract is kind of guaranteed. And then I think that remaining figure then gets split into, yeah, the, the 14 group games and there's different scenarios if you're available, if you're not available. So, yeah, it isn't quite as straightforward as, as, as what you see on, on TV, but... Feel like obviously there's, there, there is an awful lot of money in this competition to be made, and it changes a lot of people's lives. And it certainly set me up at a time where I didn't have any money really, um, and I, I didn't grow up with any money. So it certainly set me up, you know, for where I am now to be comfortable in terms of you know property and, and things like that, and and you know getting it's a nice comfort blanket to have, obviously. <laughs> It's true. It's true. It's, it's, it's not a bad problem to have, is it? No. Uh, well, look, you, you know, you're on the verge of playing your second IPL five years later. I can't imagine anyone's probably had such a big gap between their first and second IPL, although I haven't actually researched that. I read that for this particular auction, you were watching it live outside a Greg's Bakery. Is that true? <laughs> yeah, so I was, um, yeah, I was back. I was up in York seeing my best mate. There's a group of us. It was the Super Bowl weekend, so a gr group of us who are big NFL fans all went up to where my best mate lives, and we were going to watch the Super Bowl on a on a on the Sunday night. And yeah, the auction was obviously that weekend, and I knew as the IPL auction is, I knew roughly when I was up, but I don't know exactly at what time my name's going to appear. So. I'm just watching it on my phone as we're in and out of shops um, in York City Centre. And yeah, obviously just when I did actually come up for auction, yeah, just happened to be stood outside Greg's and me and my mates just huddled around my phone and watched watched the auction on my phone. And yeah, obviously ended up here with the Mumbai Indians. So how confident were you? How does it work as a player? Would your agent have sounded out some of the franchises? Did you have a a vague idea that some franchises were going to bid for you? Yeah, I knew there was interest. Um, so back in 2015, I knew there was a lot of interest. So my agent obviously pretty much spoke to all of the teams and he pretty much told me that kind of four or five of them were definitely going to be bidding on me and at different levels and such. This one, less so, it was a bit more coy because obviously it was a massive auction. You can't... Um, teams are starting from scratch. They don't know exactly how it's going to go. But yeah, I knew a few of the teams were interested, and then I was obviously in the second half of the of the auction. So you need to be nominated for the accelerated phase, um, and then again you're nervous because you know you're coming up, and then you're just hoping that a team puts you forward for the second half of the, of the auction. And 
like I got a text from Mahela just kind of checking in, saying, you know, because he was my coach for the 100 last year, so just checking in, making sure I was, you know, fit well and, you know, available, etc. Just, just kind of a final check before they nominated me. And then, um, yeah, a couple of teams bid between themselves. And, yes, yeah, so that, up until that point, until Mahela texted me, I was nervous because, as you say, you, you, ne- you truly never know. I've been unsold for the last four IPL auctions. Um, but, yeah, to get that text to... I would say that they were going to nominate me for the accelerated half was was a was a nice one to get at least. Well, you're there now. You're, you're ready to go. About to start the new season. Uh, what's your situation now? You're in a hotel in Mumbai. Are you in a bubble? How strict is that bubble? So yeah, it's all bubbled. Um, and when so basically, you hear stories from how the different IPL franchises are run and you know the the extents they go to to look after players and. You always hear that the Mumbai Indians get, you know, looked after the best of, you know, any team, and I, I can certainly vouch for that. We've um, we've got an incredible setup here. We've got the whole hotel here. There's no public, you know, we don't have a section of the hotel. We have literally the whole the whole thing. Our team room is, you know, ginormous. There's arcade games. There's uh, basketball uh, courts. There's um, we've got a, we've got a, we've actually got an outside space as well. The the company Reliance Geo, they own this park, which is next to the hotel. So we've actually got an outdoor space that has a football pitch, a mini golf, wow. driving range, a um, Nerf gun battleground. Like a <laughs> honestly, like I say, it almost unbelievable. But um, sounds great for a sixteen-year-old, mate. Oh, honestly, like sixteen-year-old <laughs> me would be in heaven. So um, we're very, very well looked after um, here. Uh, I know in comparison to other teams, they aren't as lucky. They don't have as much um, in the terms, in the way of entertainment um, for, you know, what's, what's a long time. We're out here for what will be two and a half months in total. And you're stuck in a hotel for the majority of that, apart from when you're going to cricket. So to have the setup that we have here in the hotel is, is amazing. Uh, and it will certainly help the longer we go through the tournament. So you're in that hotel for the whole tournament. You will come back and sleep there every night. Can't go anywhere else. Yeah, not allowed to leave. Uh, at the moment, we're getting COVID tested twice a day, morning and evening. Uh, I think that will relax after a little bit. But um, yeah, literally, the only times we're allowed to leave the hotel is to either go to our second bubble, that entertainment space that I, that I told you about, or to go to training or to a cricket match. And if not, we're back in the, in the hotel, yeah, for two and a half months. I mean, cricket touring has changed now and possibly forever or for a while anyway with these bubbles because everyone's obviously very worried about COVID getting in and affecting tournaments. But if you were allowed to go out and explore, are you the kind of guy that that would and that would have a look at local culture and local food and local life? Yeah, 100%. I love it. Um, I remember back so when I played for Bangalore, it was obviously pre-COVID and we were allowed to go out, restaurants, it's, it's, it's different. Where in India, you can't just walk the street, unfortunately. You are high profile, uh, especially when you're playing for these IPL franchises. But obviously, you know, the guys have lots of connections out here of, you know, where to go and to get looked after and to make to, to be made to, to feel as comfortable as possible. And it's a shame. So I have my wife and my daughter here with me. It would have been nice to for them to see a bit more of, in, of India. My wife came with me when I was at Bangalore and she got to see a little bit back then but um yeah so unfortunately they're stuck in the hotel they're not they're not doing the whole tournament they're only doing the first month so um yeah it would have been, would have been nice to you know my daughter's only only two but you know, to look back on some photos of, of her in and around india would have been really nice but again look we've 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 um we've also had periods where we've not been able to play cricket at all so um yeah, fingers crossed this will be the last year of bubbles but we'll see I'm definitely keeping my fingers crossed for that, to be honest with you. I'm not really up for, for too many more bubbles, to be honest with you, but we'll see how long it lasts for. Uh, you've actually been really lucky. You've, well, you're about to, to play under another Indian great in Rohit Sharma. You played under Virat Kohli for RCB. Early impressions, how do they both differ in terms of personality, in terms of leadership? You know, I haven't played obviously under under road just yet. I've had a few chats with him. We've, we've got a practice match tomorrow. Uh, I don't know if I'm on on Rose team or not, but um, that'll be my first kind of proper kind of interaction with him, I guess, on the field. But 
from early meetings I've had with with Mahela Jai Wardner and Shane Bond is is that he's uh, he gives the bowlers, especially the overseas bowlers, he gives them kind of the first option to kind of set their own fields and do what they want, uh, which is something that I really enjoy. Uh, I think that when you're an experienced player, you should, especially as a bowler, you, you should know what fields for the most part you want. So for me, it's just getting that relationship, and I'll be leaning on him in terms of the local batters. So guys. Batters that I don't know as well, he'll obviously know really well and, you know, recommendations on what field placements to have, etc. So, yeah, just try, trying to strike that relationship as, as quickly as possible. I think it's going to be really important because this is a largely new team. All teams are in the same boat. Um, but, yeah, I, I, in terms of differences between him and him and Virat, I got injured during the, the RCB phase. Um, only played a few games under Virat. He's... You can you can tell on the on the field. I think they're quite different characters. Virat's obviously a very fiery in your face character, whereas I think Rohit's a little bit more kind of assassin-like, you could say. Um, but yeah, I guess you, could, you have to ask me that question if we talk again at the end of the tournament, and I can give. You... <laughs> well, let, let's take it back to RCB then and talk about guys that you did play a lot with, and that is Coley and De Villiers, two of the best batsmen of our time of, of the modern era. What were they like to be around? How did they practice? What were they like in general? Did they hang out with all of you guys? Did it feel like they were sort of godlike almost compared to the rest of the team? Maybe to others, certainly to the young the young Indians within the squad. So in the IPL, you have a squad of 22, 23 players. Eight of those will be overseas players. And then you'll have a group of maybe six, seven kind of younger Indian players that realistically probably won't play a game or then one of one or two of them might get a game so to those guys I'm sure it is that kind of godlike and you know idolizing type of situation um, again just as, as I said with regards to the money side of it I was, I was probably a bit naive to it all and I wasn't too fussed if I'm being honest um, and, and I think to be honest that comes from not playing cricket growing up you know I didn't watch cricket growing up. I never played cricket till I was 14. Like, I didn't grow up wanting to be a cricketer. I know that might sound strange. So I kind of just kind of stumbled across it and then kind of kept stumbling through it. Obviously, I've, I work hard and I, I love what I do, but it's, it wasn't like this huge deal to me. And I hope that comes across as the right thing. So when, when I get to these situations that other people might be a bit overawed by or really kind of wowed by, I'm maybe not um, for, for good or for bad. So I, I kind of just treat most people like, you know, like they're my mate or somebody else that I'd, I'd meet for the first time, I guess. And for the most part, I think that holds you in good stead because um, it allows you to just be confident and strike genuine relationships with people. And, and yeah, like within the hotel and the team environment, they are just like, you know, they're like everybody else. They'll, they'll hang out in the games room, play table tennis or, you know, PlayStation or whatever other games are, whatever else you're doing in the hotel. Um, one thing I did notice about back then, the training, as I said, you have such big squads, sometimes it's hard. To, if, if you want to have a, if you're a batter and you want to have a really long net, it's, it's almost impossible because there's only a limited amount of net facilities and so many people to actually, you, know, you want to try and get as many people opportunity as you can. So I remember Virat, Chris Gale and uh, AD, used to go to training beforehand with the batting coach. So they'd have a you know, they'd have a proper hit before training. And then the rest of us would come and then we'd, we'd do like a team warm-up, play football or whatever, do fielding. And then the, the rest of us would net. But then they'd already had their hit. So that was, that was you say it like that, it's a smart way of training, isn't it? You know, it, it allows them to get a proper hit, the big, the big guys to get a proper hit in. I guess the only person that's getting worked twice as hard as the batting coach is then having to do a, another hour of throwing on top of um, his work beforehand. So that, that was something that I noticed that was just smart and a, obviously a way that some of the best players were able to, you know, maximise their performance going into a going into a season. Obviously, now T Twenty cricket has, has changed a lot, hasn't it? I want to talk a bit about bowling specifics and your role because I know you think a lot about your bowling and what you're doing is it now way more thought out and way more tactical than when you first started playing T20 yeah 100% and data is now 
so much more prevalent, even in the last two years, I'd say. Um, you look online, you go on Twitter, there's so many different accounts. You know, every, every single ball now is televised and logged and analysed and put into machines that chuck out all this data. You know, companies like QuickViz, uh, they have everything. Literally, if you want to know anything about my bowling, it's out there for you to, to find out. And likewise for batters. So if you're playing high-profile cricket, you're, you're, you really are out there. It's not just a case of somebody watching and making mental notes or just jotting down some thoughts on a bit of paper. Like where you land, every single delivery is, is, is logged and put into the cloud. And so that side of it has changed massively and that affects how people prepare. I, the way I prepare is now differently. I wasn't a big stats guy. I wasn't a big one for watching all the videos that used to get sent out before a game, you know, the, the big bowlers meetings and watching all the footage, that that never used to interest me because ultimately I'd just back myself to be better than the batter on, on a day and just go into the battle like that. Whereas now with all the data that's out there, I think it'd be pretty foolish to not tap into it and not identify potential kinks in a batter's game or potential strengths that I have that match up well against an opposition batter. So I definitely pay more attention to it now. Not not hugely. I don't deep dive and look through every single batter I'm going to play against, you know, stats and go through sheets of apps. And I was going to say sheets of paper, but it's not even sheets of paper anymore. It's every, everything's on, on apps. Um, yeah, I'll certainly have a quick look and talk with, say, captain, coach, about glaring, I like outliers, so something that a batter does very well, so to obviously try and stay away from, or something that they do particularly poorly or they have a weak, weakness against, and then try and exploit that weakness. So that's all I want to know, because then anything in the middle really is so variable from game to game and conditions, and if I'm having an off day or if that is having an off day or a good day, you know, vice versa. It, cricket is a very variable game, uh, as much as we can put it into, you know, pigeonholes so yeah I, I just want to know outliers and that's something that I'm quite quite stringent on now especially with, with players I don't know as well when I'm in England I, for the most part I'll know a lot of the guys I'm coming up against but when I go to overseas tournaments I obviously I don't know a lot of the, the local players that I'm going to be coming against so that's where you have to lean on A. the data and B. you know your other players who actually know them and have known them for a long time so when you say outliers, say for example, you're bowling at Aaron Finch and you will know that he's not very good, say, on wide Yorkers, but he's very strong on anything on his hip. Would you have a bit more detail than that or is that pretty much about it? Yeah, that's pretty much it. So so when talking about death bowling, for example, I, I want to know essentially if they have a very strong area where they hit, like if there's a, an outlier, so if there's somewhere where they hit a lot of their boundaries, four or six, I want to know if they play the ramp shot or not. So if they don't play the ramp shot, that affects what fields I have. Um, or So you might have a guy that hit... So normally guys will hit down the ground, long on, deep mid on, cow corner. That, that's where they'll hit their sixes. But every so often you come up across a guy that actually hits better over mid off. So you might need to... So just knowing that, okay, he actually hits more sixes over mid off than he does um, mid on. So those little nuggets of information paired with, okay, do they ramp? Uh, when they ramp, is it very fine? Is it a bit squarer? Just the field placements and things like that. So, yeah, those those are the two things that I really want to know. Um, yeah, if, if a batter has a big strength or a weakness and whether they play the ramp shot or not, and then that kind of dictates where my, my field placements will be. If you're a batsman, you can look at the field and almost predict where the ball is going to be. So do you have to have the ability as a fast bowler to bluff and know when to bluff? Yeah, definitely. And I'm also a big believer in not having a field where it is 100% obvious what you're going to bowl. You, it's, as you say, it's, it's, it's that simple. If the batter knows or maybe gives himself 90% you know, chance, probability that he knows what you're going to bowl, you're probably going to lose that delivery. So you need to... One of something I always say to anybody that you know asks me or I'm working with is, you have to have a, a field set that gives you at least two, preferably three, deliveries that you can bowl. So, with that comes with a bit of a gamble and a, a bit of a case of bluffing. Um, so, um, that's something that I feel you have to do. You have to be on the side of risk as opposed to safety because if you just put all your players out on the leg side 
and you've got nobody out on the offside, you give yourself the tiniest margin for error. And if you miss at all, you're, you're going to get punished. And you're also you're telling the batter what you're probably going to bowl in terms of line. So there needs to be a little bit of you know cat and mouse there. And um, ultimately, you've got to go on gut instinct when you're out in the middle. And sometimes you just got to roll the dice and hope for the best and, and see what happens. Does it annoy you when pundits or commentators or presenters like me say, why don't they just bowl Yorkers? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, look, I've, I've, I've been like, I've done a lot of commentary myself. I've, I've, I've done a lot of um, punditry and it's, it, it's a difficult job because, yeah, you think you're always looking at things in hindsight and with retrospects and saying, yeah, I'll just, just bowl a Yorker. But, you know, it's, it's the most difficult ball to execute and it's the most high variance. And when you miss... Batters are so good nowadays, especially in tournaments like the IPL. If you miss your Yorker, you're probably going to get hit for six, if not four. Uh, every so often you'll get away with it and you might get a wicket if they don't execute. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult. But um, yeah, like commentators, pundits like yourself, you, you pay to say something. So you've got to, you've got to say something. Haven't you? Speaking of Yorkers, you're working with or you're playing with at the moment, about to play with one of the best in the business in Jasprit Bumrah. What's it like to see him operating close up? Yeah, no, I'm really looking forward to that. He's He joined us a little bit late because they had a test series that finished shortly before we joined up for training camp. So those guys got a bit of, a little bit of time off. So, um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm really looking forward to working with with Boom. Um, I've seen him around the hotel quite a bit the last few days. But, um, yeah, definitely looking to learn from him. Many cues that I can. Obviously, look, we're very different bowlers every Every bowler has different styles, actions, etc. He has a very unique action bowling style. So I'm certainly not going to start bowling like him. But anything mindset-wise, I can pick up from him. Any any technical bits, that, you know, where he's looking when he's bowling a Yorker, for example, you know, th- those type of things are. You'd be remiss to to not try and pick up on those things whilst you're in this situation. Same as you know, Zahir Khan's involved with the setup here at Mumbai. He's obviously a left arm, was a left arm, a great left arm bowler. Um, myself being left armor also, so try and take some tips from him. Shane Bond is our bowling coach, who was a brilliant um, international bowler. So, yeah, just trying to pick up things. You know, as you say, T20 cricket, you can't stand still because you'll get you'll get overtaken. Um, so, yeah, try and to evolve your game as much as possible. I want to finish, mate, by talking about a subject that I talk about fairly often on these podcasts, which is racism and. Unconscious bias in cricket, particularly in UK cricket. Obviously, you and I are both from a diverse background, so I think we'll have a, uh, interesting opinions on this. Um, first of all, you know, what are your thoughts on how the whole Azim Rafiq situation panned out? Did a lot of what he was saying ring true or, or make sense to you at all? It's, it's, it's difficult. A lot's obviously happened in the last couple of years, stemming back from. You know, George Floyd, etc. A couple of years ago, that started a lot of conversations within uh, cricket, especially English cricket. Uh, and then, obviously, the stuff of Azim over this last year has obviously become very high profile, and you know, it took over cricket, didn't it, for for a little while. Um, a lot of good will and has come out of it. I'm sure a lot of change has and continues to happen. Um, a lot can still be done. I'm not. I'm, I'm personally not convinced about how everything came across, and I don't agree with how it all played out. Um, a lot of the, the problem is, is interpretation is is massive, and it's, it's it's a difficult one to talk about when you when you're not directly yeah. involved, um, and hearing people that have been involved and people that are being accused of things but not having the right to defend themselves really and it's it's it's, it's it was it got very messy um but i don't know enough personally to to really comment on that side of it but i think people are definitely a lot more aware of what they say what they can say what they should say um and the problem is like i've, I've been a professional cricketer now for 10 years or so I think we'd be naive. I think it's harsh. What I don't like is, you know, people looking back on tweets from seven, eight, ten years ago and trying to 
crush people for, for those tweets. I, I briefly got caught up in that a little bit this winter with something that Jack Brooks tweeted me when we were friends and still are friends kind of six years ago in language that he, he shouldn't have used and um, he wouldn't use now. I think there needs to be understanding for that about how times change, how people change. Um, and I don't like how people kind of get gone after in, in that regard. Because like, if I had a magic crystal ball and could go through every single conversation I've had within a sports dressing room since I was, however long I've played sports, I'm sure there's a heap of things that would now be deemed racist and inappropriate, etc. But did they have any genuine, I think, deciphering what had genuine malice and genuine intent and genuine um, want to upset or exclude somebody versus something that the word banter gets, you know, it's kind of been blackboard now, I guess, hasn't it? But it, it would have genuinely been banter. And if it was received that way and taken that way, um, for me, it's, it's down to the individual. And then those that are brave enough to come out and speak about how if it wasn't uh, perceived that way, I think should be credited, which I think they have been. And hopefully now it's just a case of getting better and this is I've said this before this is a generational thing we won't this won't get better in a year five years ten years hopefully in 20 years time when you know a whole new generation of people have come through these things won't happen or will happen less I think it's naive to think we're just going to click our fingers and all this has happened things are going to get better so sorry if I've spoken a lot there without saying anything um but yes, it's, it's a very difficult subject to, to really broach, as you know. Yeah, no, listen, you have said quite a bit there. And a lot of what you've said there, I actually kind of agree with, to be honest with you. I think you spoke a lot of sense there about uh, we can't go too far one way and, and, you know, sort of calling out lots of people for things that, that maybe aren't necessarily racist or or going back through historical tweets when, you know, things are different and trying to entrap people. Yeah. I guess the discussion is sort of how, you know, how far down is this? I mean, I remember when Azim Rafiq said that cricket is institutionally racist in this country. And I thought at the time, well, I don't really agree with that because that's not my experience of it. But then the more I think about it, the more I think, well, may maybe there is an element of truth to that. Maybe cricket is institutionally racist, but maybe society is institutionally racist. So it's kind of like... Is it helping by using terms like that? Do we have to use terms like that in order to to make change, to kind of to, to shock people? Because people do get shocked by phrases like that, institutionally racist. Yeah, you, you, you are right. And I, I agree with what you say there. Um, and, and look, the numbers don't lie within, within representation in, in English cricket. I'm, I'm one of a few black players in, in the professional game in England, for whatever reason that is. The, I remember speaking about this at the time before Azim. This was more towards when the George Floyd Black Lives Matter movement was happening and this, these conversations were being spoken about. And I think we have to accept that, unfortunately, cricket isn't an overly accessible sport. It's an expensive sport. Um, and unfortunately expensive sports marginalize people that can't afford to play them you know you, if you want to play football all you need is a pair of boots and some shin pads and that's it you know your, your local team will provide you with socks t-shirts shorts so that's that's your kit um and transport so a lot of it's, it's not just a, a racial thing really it's a sort of class divide as well yeah. isn't it in a lot of ways. dynamics and yeah unfortunately cricket just isn't an accessible sport for a lot of people. I was very I had I was, I was very lucky. I had help from a lot of people. I grew up in Suffolk, so a, a minor county in cricketing in the cricketing world. I grew up single parent family, um, you know, no money to, to speak of. I grew up at my school I went to state school. My school didn't play cricket, still doesn't, I'm sure. Um, my mum didn't drive, so there was no cricket in my town. So if I want to play cricket, I, I needed to get. I either got the bus, or I got mates to give me lifts, or pick me up, or drop me, or people from my cricket club would take me home. You know, to the next town, back home. I had an awful lot of help, and then when I obviously got to a level where I was getting good enough, I had grants from the. I got. I was lucky enough to get a grant from like the local county council to help pay for my travel to, to Essex because I was having to travel uh, two hours one way 
to get to Essex to do academy training for Essex. So Essex helped me source funding to help pay for, you know, trains and buses and equipment, you know, cricket kit, because you know, you're not really getting sponsored at 17, 18 years old. So I had an awful lot of help and um, I'm very thankful for that help and lucky to have gotten that help. Um, but also I had to put in a lot of hard work as well. You know, I, I, I had to travel those two hours one way, so four hour round trip twice a week whilst going to school, whilst being at sixth form still. Whereas a lot of guys probably, that's where cricket loses a lot of people. Um, a lot of other people maybe wouldn't have bothered. It wouldn't have been worth it for them to, to put in that effort, to ask for all that help that it was needed. So for me, it was my mates picking me up from various Evans train station at 11 at night after I've gotten a train back to drive me 20 minutes back home and I'd pay them just, you know, a little bit of petrol money. A lot of people maybe don't have that support network or didn't, wouldn't, wouldn't want to ask. And that's maybe the barriers that cricket, you know, has um, for certain people in certain parts of the UK. What's your background then, mate? Where are your parents from? So my mum's English and then my dad's from the Caribbean, but um, I don't know my dad. I haven't seen him, you know, pretty much my whole life. So I was raised by my by my mum in, in Suffolk, yeah. So I presume, similar to me, you would have grown up in a fairly white, dominated environment. Very white. Uh, <laughs> did you experience much racism when you were a kid or, or even afterwards when you were a professional starting out? I, I say no, no, none, nothing direct, nothing that um, I could, you know, really put my finger upon and say, yeah, oh, that was a racial ex racial experience. Uh, I had one, I went on a stag do to Croatia when I was like 19 and that, that part of the world, as we know, is, you know, less diverse, <laughs> shall we say. I went out there again, probably a bit naive and I was, yeah, that was the first time that I was directly kind of abused racially uh, in a, in a nightclub and that, that really affected me because, it, and I think that proved that I hadn't experienced it up until then, if that makes sense, because I think I was 19, maybe 20, yeah, probably 20. And it was you know, blatant and obvious and it really affected me kind of emotionally. So I think that, yeah, that reaffirms I, I hadn't experienced anything like that to that point in my life. And then, yeah, as since, since turning professional, uh, as I say, like if I had that magic ball and we looked through every single dressing room interaction I've ever had, yeah, like I'm sure there's been lots of stuff said that would be deemed inappropriate now, but certainly nothing... I've, I've, I've certainly never um, been exposed to any racist behaviour or been made to feel uh, excluded or anything like that because, because of the colour of, of my skin. And I guess that's probably uh, another reason why, you know, you've got to take each case by case because someone like you or, or, or me, you know, we, we wouldn't have experienced very much racism, whereas... You know, maybe someone like Azim Rafiq or someone from that kind of a background in a different area, they've got a very different experience of it. So it's almost kind of hard for us to, to, to fully see it from their point of view. Yeah, it is. I say ultimately, because you never know how anything affects anybody, you know, and that's that's taking racism out of it as well. You know, you never know how any situation will affect anybody, if that makes sense. What happens in, a, in the day to day life to you? If the same thing happened to me, it could affect me completely differently. So, yeah, you don't know how things ever affect people um, on, on any different levels. You might brush something off as nothing, but to somebody else, it might be a really big deal. And that's not just talk, talk, talking racism, that's talking anything, as I said. Um, but, yeah, not being able to necessarily relate to it makes it maybe a, a, a bit more difficult to talk about it. And that's why when as you say, being one of the few black players in England, people think, oh, what's he got to say or what's Joffre got to say or whatever. It's not about, it, it, unfortunately, it's not that simple. Um, and you still have to realise that maybe my words or somebody else's person of colour's words carry a bit more weight. Is is sometimes a bit of a, you know, a, a responsibility that you have to be aware of when talking about this. But then we also... We do have that responsibility if we want things to be better. We want to see more black players, Asian players, you know, whatever minority group it is, playing cricket. So, just striking that balance, um, and it's yeah, it's, it's it's about learning. And I've I've certainly learned a lot in the last couple of years um, about that. I've teamed up with 
charity chance to shine to try and do it's been tough obviously with covid but um hopefully now we're getting back out the other side of that in the uk try and do a bit more to you know get a few more guys coming through because as i mentioned earlier the numbers don't lie there aren't a lot of um minority groups playing professional cricket at the moment as I, as I touched on earlier cricket isn't the most accessible sport so how how do we figure that out i think i saw something an article recently like middlesex are trying to do something at the moment i think because they said like half of their half of their current academy is of a minority base yet none of their staff are english born minority players or uh, apologies if i have that wrong so the number you know the numbers are there it is it is true it's factual so something's going on and um you know hopefully in time it, things will get better well said mate i, I 100% agree with all that it's been a, an absolute pleasure to talk to you appreciate you taking time out and you're preparing for a big tournament i've looked at the squad by the way and i reckon you you got a good chance of playing in that first game haven't you Hope so, yeah. Look, I've not come out here to sit on the bench. I want to. I want to play. Look, playing cricket in India is one of the one of the great experiences. Um, I saw today there's only going to be twenty five percent crowds for the beginning of the tournament. So obviously not huge crowds to start, but I think they've said as the tournament progresses, they'll hopefully increase the the capacity, um, COVID allowing. So yeah, look, that's one of the things that I look back on. Those games I played for RTB in in the IPL were some of the some of, if not the best games of my, you know, experiences of my career, you know, playing at Eden Gardens in front of 80,000 or however many people, you know, fans going absolutely crazy, you know, hopefully, you know, we're playing at the Wankade Stadium here, the second half of the group stage and, you know, if, if, if there's close to full crowds allowed there, that'll be something special and you know, those, those are the moments I personally, I play cricket for, those big moments, big crowds, big stadiums, big names, that's why we, you know, it's why we play the game. It's why I play the game anyway. So fingers crossed, we get to that, uh, get to that stage with the crowds, and yeah, hopefully I'm in, I'm in the team, and, and I'm going okay. It seems like your game is in a pretty good place at the moment. Do you feel like you've got unfinished business with the IPL this year? I think so. Like, I, I want to give a better account of myself than I did five years ago. I know people will talk about that. Um, try and shake off that that label, but also I'm not putting too much. Um, weight on that um, because if you start thinking about that too much you'll tense up and but bowling in T20 cricket is a difficult enough game as it is sometimes you know especially when you're bowling to a lot of the best players in the world who are out here in India at the moment on some what I'm sure I'm going to be some good tracks and some small grounds and some fast outfields so um, yeah tempering my expectations but also when I'm out there with the ball in hand trying to be as you know, composed and, and as confident as I can, I'm going to go out there and execute. And there'll be a lot of people willing you on from here, me included. It's been great to talk to you. Appreciate it. Cheers, Floydie. Good to chat as always, mate.